The reading is taken from Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 to 34. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Beautifully read, Maggie, thank you. Before I start this morning, I did just want to uh, remind you, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to um, Beirut on Tuesday with Open Doors, and I'm going for 10 days, and we're meeting all sorts of people and persecuted Christians, really, in the Middle East. And part of this is going to be a church leaders gathering to try and learn from uh, what has happened in the Middle East and how the church out there can cope and go forward. So I did just want to say I'd love you to pray for me. I'd love you to pray for Bex and the boys in my absence. And um, also I've been asked to, I can say this to the congregation, but not to put anything on, so, on social media or into the public domain about it, uh, just for security reasons. But I'd really appreciate your prayers for uh, obvious reasons. So I said earlier, what I want to do is ask you a simple question this morning, which is, who are you following? Who are you following? And I don't know whether you like shopping. Does anyone like shopping? I really don't like shopping. I had to go into town yesterday to get some stuff for this trip, and I just, uh, just I really don't like shopping. And it took me back to a time when I was young, when I used to go shopping with my mum. I found it so boring, and what I used to do is just follow her shoes rather than just keep looking up. I was about six or seven at the time, and I just followed her shoes. And I remember for about half an hour just following her shoes, and then I suddenly looked up, and to my horror, it wasn't my mum I was following. And I want to suggest something of that can happen in our own lives as we uh, follow Jesus Christ. And I want to look at these Bible verses uh, quite closely this morning, and please keep that question in your mind. Who are you following? We're called, aren't we, to follow Jesus, but I think we can often just forget who it is we are following. Now, I've got a few points, and the first thing I want to say is, actually, as Christians, we're following someone who was phenomenally popular. Jesus was phenomenally popular, verses 7 to 9. People flocked to see him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed when they heard all about what he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, because the crowd he told his, uh, because of this, the, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So I'm just saying that we follow someone, Jesus, who was phenomenally popular in his day. And I say that because um, actually we can forget that. I don't know whether you're a football fan. I watched the FA Cup final on holiday with my children, Arsenal-Chelsea. Arsenal won, our team won, which was great. But it was the place to be on that afternoon. It was packed full of crowds. And actually, Jesus seemed to have, as we've heard, this effect on people. And I say this because actually there was a day yesterday, the diocese ran it, to work out how he can try and uh, increase the health of the church in this country because now only 9% of the population come to church, uh, which is very different to when uh, Jesus was uh, uh, around. Not, you, you, know, you know what I mean? He, had, he was phenomenally uh, popular, and they explored that yesterday uh, at a conference, so it was great they were doing that. 
Why on earth, though, did people flock to Jesus? I think that's a fair question, isn't it? Was it his character? Uh, He was clearly perfect, but I suggest that wasn't the case. Was it because he ran good services? Mm, No. Was it because he led worship really well? No. Was it because of the beautiful liturgy he seemed to craft? No. Was it because he served great coffee uh, with a smile? No. The reason people followed him was actually quite straightforward. Uh, His popularity lay in his spiritual power. Jesus was phenomenally uh, powerful spiritually. Uh, You see this verse 10. People flocked to him because he could heal them. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And actually in a world where medical skill uh, by our standards was primitive, uh, someone who could heal people always caused a stampede, obviously. So Jesus was phenomenally popular. And part of that was because of his spiritual power to heal people. He could also um, set people free from evil forces. This sounds a bit um, strange uh, sitting here in Surrey in 2017, but it's true, verses 11 and 12. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him, cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Tom Wright, uh, a theologian, says this of this uh, bit in this part of Mark's gospel. Jesus' healing powers were operating on a spiritual level, yet once you engage in such a spiritual level, you're open to various evil forces as well as those of disease and death. Calling these forces unclean spirits is a convenient way of saying two things about them. First, they're non-physical powers that operate upon and sometimes within a person. Second, they defile the one they inhabit, making a person behave in ways that are untrue to their calling as a human being. Even though we might find this rather disturbing, the spirits themselves knew they were in the presence of a power greater than themselves. They recognized in Jesus not just a great healer, but a spiritual power and presence of an altogether different order to themselves. So, are you with me so far? Jesus was popular, he was powerful, he healed, he set people free. And uh, actually, It's worth every now and again as we follow him, as we follow his shoes, just to look up and not forget who it is we are following, the power of the person we're following, actually the strangeness of the person we're following and the slightly freaky nature too of the person we're following. Because this is a bit bit weird, isn't it? Or is that just me? Is it just me who finds this a bit weird? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Jesus is a bit weird. So we need to uh, check uh, from time to time Uh, who it is we're following. Secondly, I want to suggest this morning, we're following someone uh, who asks us to do what he himself was doing. Verse 13 and 14. This all started, of course, with the appointment of the 12 apostles. Jesus went up on a mountainside, called to him those he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12. Now, what's going on here? Every Jew of that time knew that there were 12 tribes in Israel, or at least there had been. And uh, this idea of the 12 tribes goes back to uh, uh, Jacob, the patriarch, and uh, you hear the stories of these 12 tribes in the book of Genesis. The Assyrians had invaded about 700 years before Jesus is standing in this place, and they'd wiped out 10 of the tribes. There were probably only two left. But the prophets at that time had prophesied that the the 12 tribes of Israel would be uh, reinstated, and they would return. And so actually, 
when Jesus called 12 followers apart from the crowds, gave them special status and a special commission, nobody who heard of it would have missed actually what he was doing. It's highly symbolic what he's doing. He's saying more clearly than any words could have done that his work wasn't just about healing. This isn't simply a time of spiritual renewal. This actually in him is a restoration of all that they've been waiting for, which the prophets had been longing for. Now, what does he call them to do? What does he call these 12 to do? Verse 14 and 15, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Actually, being with him is the priority. Notice that before we do anything. And that he might send them out to preach. That's to speak of him, his good news. And also to have authority to drive out demons. And uh, actually, I don't know what you make of that commission, but he seems to pass that on to the 12. He sends them out. He then sends out the 72, and then he sends out all disciples to do those things. Now, I don't know what you make of that. I used to be a gymnast, and um, basically uh, I used to have this trainer. Uh, We were on a national team. We had this trainer who used to show us something and then ask us to do it. And I remember him running down. I went, do it. There was a sort of pole vault move. He ran down, uh, you know, into this thing, hit the, hit the uh, spring ball, whatever you call it, did this somersault and landed. And he said, right, Mike, your turn. I remember thinking, A, I don't think I really could ever do that. I don't know when you read these verses whether you think that. B, more importantly, I used to think I'm not sure I even want to do that, even if I could do that. And so this is an important thing we have to ask ourselves. Who are we following? What's he asking us to do? Do we think he can do? We can do what he's asking us to do. But most importantly of all, do we actually want to do it? Do we want to follow this person in all that he wants us uh, to do? Now, it's important that we remember that the apostles were actually an ordinary group of people, verse 16 to 18. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. We know quite a lot about Simon. He's a very human sort of figure. Uh, I won't go through all of this, but there's James, son of Zebedee's brother John, uh, sons of thunder. That says something about their character. Do you know any people who are a bit thunderous? And um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and so on and so on and so on. But basically, these are ordinary people who Jesus commissions and calls and sends out and asks to do these things in his name. So let me ask you, are you following him? Do you want to do what he's calling you to do? And I'm asking myself those questions too. And uh, I'm trying just to remind us this morning that we are following someone uh, who is utterly extraordinary. It's almost slightly disturbing. Here we go. Jesus is revolution, you see, because he goes up into the hills for the same reason that others did at that time to shape his followers into a truly revolutionary group, to do so away from the prying eyes of the authorities. And uh, it's clear that what he wants to do is actually turn everything around. Physical, spiritual, social, political. And actually, this, let's be honest, isn't very sorry, is it, in the sense of where we find ourselves. But we're following someone who is extraordinary, radical. And who should, uh, when we're following him and look up from time to time, be, we should be like, <laughs> oh my gosh, who is that? Who is that? Because we can domesticate uh, Jesus. Now, 
If you find this a bit difficult, I find this a bit weird and a bit difficult. His family clearly found it difficult, verse 20 to 21. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, and they said, he's out of his mind. They think he's gone mad, saying the sorts of things he's doing and doing the sorts of things uh, he's doing. When I came to faith in my early 20s, I was working as a lawyer, I was seemingly normal. <laughs> I came to faith and lots of friends actually said, when I got involved in the church, Mike, what are you doing? You're going a bit crazy, don't do it. And even my fa- family members said to me, Mike, you know, when I said, oh, look, I feel to be called to be ordained, they said, seriously, don't do it. You're, you're going a bit crazy. You're taking this too seriously. Uh, it's a bit, you know, What's happened to the old Mike we all love and know? Uh, You're going a bit crazy. So I'm just saying I can sort of actually relate to uh, Jesus' family here and uh, some of their concerns. Now, unsurprisingly, family aside, the Pharisees, the scribes, they can't stand him because he doesn't fit into neat little categories or boxes. They can't control him, so he's a great threat to them. And what do you do with someone like that? Well, they try and discredit him. And they basically say, look, actually, you're not good, you're evil. Uh, you're, you're like Satan. And verse 22, the teacher of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, I don't know how you'd respond if you were Jesus to this pressure, to this accusation. He actually doesn't lash back. He merely points out the flaw in their logic. If Satan is driving out Satan... Surely that means he's fighting against himself. That just doesn't, doesn't work. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Or if they suggest a civil war breaks out in a kingdom, surely that means it will collapse against itself. Or if people in the same household start fighting themselves, it's actually the end of that family unit, verse 23 to 27. So Jesus called them over to him, began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. But of course, their labeling is wrong, and deep down they know it. And that's why they feel so threatened. The stronger one has arrived... And the strong one finds that his house is being burgled. Jesus' healings and particularly his exorcisms a sign that God's kingdom is indeed arriving, the kingdom in which people who have been held captive will at last be set free. And so Jesus' critics, effectively, they, they painted themselves or put themselves in a corner. And they've actually labeled the work of God, which is good and powerful and releasing and restoring people's dignity, as the work of the devil himself. And this, according to Jesus, is the only unforgivable thing. Verse 28 to 30. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So what I want to really do this morning is just remind us that we're following someone who is wonderful, beautiful, glorious, powerful, but also quite strange at the same time. And actually, you know, yes, 
He was popular. Yes, actually, uh, he does call us to do the things he was doing. And finally and thirdly, also, he's doing nothing other than seeking to change the whole fabric of society. Verse 31 to 34. Are you still with me, by the way? Should I do this or not? This is the last thing. We're nearly there. He's changing the, own, the whole fabric of society, starting with his own family, uh, 31 to 34. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. Don't know how you feel about that. For us Westerners, that's quite shocking. Verse uh, sort of 33, 34 is quite shocking. Um, but actually, in its day, it would have been absolutely, utterly offensive. Really, really shocking. Because um, actually, uh, scandalous even. Uh, one theologian said this, In Jesus' time, the family bond was tight and long-lasting. It was normal for children to live close to their parents, Maybe even in the same house, the family unit was often a business unit too in which everything was shared in common. What is more for Jewish people, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living. It was at the heart of all things. Loyalty to the family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty actually to Israel as the people of God. Break that link and you've broken a significant pillar in the way that Jews of the first century think. Family solidarity was actually right up there with Sabbath observance, the food laws, and other signs of Jewish identity. Jesus slices through them all. And we have to be careful here. Jesus isn't saying, I don't care about my own family. It's clear from what happens later on, as we'll see in this gospel, that he loves his family. He loves his uh, uh, parents and honors them. Yet he does have quite a different mission, and it involves breaking hallowed family ties. Through him, you see, God is actually doing the unthinkable. He's starting a brand new family, a new holy people, and is doing so without regard for the ordinary human family bonds, a new family who draw their identity in the first place from him and not from long-lasting friendships or the universities they go to, the clubs, their occupations, their county or country, but they primarily are a family whose first identity actually comes from him. So 34 and 35 are like, ah, deeply shocking when Jesus uttered those. And they continue actually to be deeply shocking for our own human family bonds today. What's strange. So I think we better draw to a close. Should we sing this final 